got to take the patient along with you and keeping them involved in the changes because they're, they're already unsettled by the by what's going on outside in the community and if one of their safety net the, the nephrology service that they potentially have relied on for many years has also disappeared from under their feet and they don't know how to access it then that again could be really unnerving for them. Hello and welcome back to the ISN Global Kidney Care Podcast. I'm Roberto Pecoafilho, a nephrologist and co-chair of the ISN Education Working Group. Today we present part two of our conversation with two sets of UK-based nephrologists and kidney health professionals on the front lines of the COVID-19 crisis. One group is located in London and the other group in Salford. Again, this conversation will be led by Dr. Smita Sinha, chair of the Northwest England ne Renal Network. We hope you come away informed and educated. Look for more COVID conversations soon. And in June, the launch of the Global Kidney Care podcast in its traditional format. I just want to pick up on the AKI as well, because this has been an area of interest internationally and about patients presenting with AKI. And John, you touched on um, whether it was coagulation related, whether it was due to fluid balance. Um, we see variation certainly in the northwest between different critical care units and the amount of AKI that they're seeing. So I, I, I'd be quite keen to bring in the northwest people here because the Salford critical care unit has had very little AKI um, compared to certain other areas. Um, how, how have you seen patients with non-pre-existing renal disease present um, with AKI up in the north? You know, well, I think the honest answer is we've not seen an awful lot of it as a nephrologist. The, I think the feeling is that they're, they're, they're often, often deteriorating. If they do suffer from an AKI, they're either presenting possibly with AKI and possibly, uh, you know, in, in a sort of a very sort of extreme situation, perhaps going straight to intensive care and, and not uh, requiring a nephrology consult uh, before then. Or the AKI might, might be fairly mild and AKI1, for example, and, and, and we wouldn't get involved. So I, my, my feel for AKI in COVID, it, it, it's not come directly uh, to the nephrology service, uh, particularly. Um, where we have um, offered our services and, and helped uh, is the um, perhaps slightly earlier step down of patients from intensive care with single organ um, uh, failure, uh, where perhaps they might stay on intensive care for a little bit longer, but because of the unusual press pressures, we have uh, we have certainly um, offered ourselves uh, to take um, patients who maybe not be fully fully stable as, as as perhaps we would like, but in the in the circumstances we've um, we've accepted them with, with continued ICU support, but primarily under the nephrology team for continued renal replacement therapy. Um, and I think that's probably one of the major major areas nephrology can contribute going forward with this um, to try and. Uh, be, uh, help with patient flow through intensive care is really having a close dialogue with their intensivists. Um, we've also been offer offering in intermittent hemodialysis on our intensive care for acute kidney injury patients, um, which isn't something that we would ordinarily do. Um, uh, our intensive care is uh, primarily uh, CVVH for acute kidney injury, but in view of uh, some limitations of resources um, nationally, but also uh, in view of um, just supporting supporting our intense, intensive care from a nursing perspective, um, and uh, they've been very grateful for the well, uh, 
I'm speaking on their behalf, but I think they've been very great <laughs> for, for um, our involvement in, in their in their patients, really, and supporting their supporting one aspect of um, of the care, really. Tracy, do you want to talk to that as well? Because the the nurses have been going up onto the intensive care units, haven't they? Yeah, they 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 have. I mean, again, the demand hasn't been you know um, significantly felt by us, but uh, where the when the demand was there, then the nurses were um, released to go and support the critical care units. And as James said, that was greatly received. Um, obviously, there was the issue around the Donning and Doffin, and we had to provide say two two nurses at any given time just to enable them to. Um, get out of the um, full PP and give them some respite from that. But um, yeah, again, it, because we we were able to forward plan, um, we were able to put that process in place um, quite easily. And um, I think ICU were were very welcoming of that and valued our support. And we continue to provide that support as and when it's required, not only to um, our critical care unit here, but we're also now providing support to other critical care units throughout the northwest. Tracy, can I ask you about your experiences of delivering hemodialysis on intensive care around circuits clotting and what type of anticoagulation you use? I wonder whether there's a paradigm between the provision of intermittent hemodialysis and some of the challenges that John and others would be familiar with in terms of the filtration circuits clotting. How did you approach that? I don't, I don't feel that we've had any significant problems with, with that at all um because there's only been a few patients and i've not been i mean i haven't i'm not personally dialysis trained but my nursing staff who have gone up there um haven't um relayed any concerns back to me around um coagulation i don't know whether james uh, no, has experienced I, I, any. I think i think the i suppose it's the patient select uh, it's the selection of patients that have been perhaps the bonds that are less catabolic mm. and they've perhaps gone through most of their um, sort of cytokine cytokine storm, and, and so we haven't noticed that. Although I know it's been wild, widely reported on the filter across many intensive cares, um, uh, it's not something that we have uh, seen in, in sort of the recovering HD patient, um, recovering AKI patients. Sorry. Um, so yeah, sorry I couldn't fully answer that question. Do you want me to comment briefly on some of these issues? Um, certainly on CRT, there was we had very significant challenges early on uh, with uh, circuit clotting. Um, uh, this was and particularly when we changed from our usual hep, uh, citrate anticoagulated CRT to doing a prolonged intermittent treatment in order to maximise the number of patients we were able to treat in a day. However, that was then being anticoagulated with unfractionated heparin, and we found that the, actually their circuit life was very poor there. And that was at the same time as we were seeing a lot of evolving evidence about the potential for these patients to have thromboembolism. It ended up we therapeutically anticoagulated our patients with treatment dose low molecular weight heparin during their CRT treatments. Now, that was actually very successful and wasn't met with significant bleeding complications. We have been doing some antitene uh, monitoring and we've got a very experienced uh, hemostasis and coagulation department uh, in the hematology laboratory who've been giving us some guidance um, and developing policies as we've moved along. Uh, what we've actually now subsequently found is not the problem with having enough machines, it's having enough circuits because there's been a massive uh, international shortage in both the circuits and the uh, bagged fluid for uh, continuous therapies in the ICU. And uh, there have been some ICUs who effectively run out of consumables uh, in North London and others where it's obviously been a critical level. 
And so we've been extremely grateful to the support of our nephrology um, department for supporting intermittent hemodialysis in these patients to the extent where we've actually opened a satellite ICU, which we're running, but is uh, the dialysis being provided by the dialysis nursing staff up in the existing renal ward. So we have access to the plumbed supply uh, while we obtain some additional portable ROs, water softeners, etc., to open a new plumbed area of ICU that we um, enables us to do intermittent therapy. And uh, this has taken the load off our CRT supplies, which are being more reserved for things like patients on ECMO in Bart's, our sister hospital, and other patients we don't think is appropriate for IHD. But obviously there's the elements of prescription that may need to be tailored in these patients, particularly if they are on vasopressors. Um, and uh, again, as I say, the anticoagulation strategy is pretty much that we're adopting from our IHD regimen where we use uh, low molecular heparin to the circuit, but also an enhanced um, thromboprophylactic regimen uh, driven by D-dimer levels actually, in the background, which provides, I think, quite an effective level of anticoagulation. And with that, things have been going well, but it's been extremely challenging. And we would have, well, patients would have died without the support of the renal department in enabling us to uh, meet the shortfall in our ability to find CRT. And I think as a country, we've learned from um, not keeping an eye on who's got what stocks. Um, because certainly whilst London was struggling with access to consumables, there was other parts of the country which had it. Um, so I think there's been some national learning. So certainly from a Northwest Network point of view, um, we um, provide mutual aid to sites that may be running low so they don't get into that situation. So it's sort of sharing the consumables around um, a little bit more. But the fact that we now have on the call yesterday, on the national call, um, we heard that there were 600 patients receiving renal replacement therapy around the country, of which 100 were via intermittent hemodialysis or peritoneal dialysis. So that's a, a huge proportion of renal replacement therapy on uh, ICUs, um, which would otherwise have had to be delivered by CRRT. So um, it'd be interesting to see how that changes if there is a second spike, which hopefully there won't be. Um, well, just, I was just wondering about that, Sweet, and whether or not uh, there's been a response from the manufacturers, because I, I, I'm working on the, on the premise there will be a second spike. I'm working on the premise we'll probably be in a, in a similar situation. Has there been a commitment from the consumable suppliers for the filtration circuits that there's been a, a scaling up of their production or accessibility to consumables that, we, that we've been challenged with so far? So I'm sure the national team are having those conversations. Um, probably not one for... Uh, for me yet but I'm sure they'll let us know once they know. Um, I just wanted to bring it back to some of the clinical questions because it got quite interesting. Um, we heard about the pre-ICU, uh, sorry the ICU position and AKI on there and the management of dialysis patients. I'm just wondering in the pre-ICU phase, so V in particular, when you were seeing these COVID patients, um, you were supporting medicine at the time, do you think they were coming in with intrinsic renal disease as a result of COVID or do you think their AKI was um, influenced by our management of them? Yesterday? Yeah it's difficult to say so I, I was um, working I did about two weeks flat at the end of March where I was purely on on the COVID wards and I'm, and I'm wearing wary about saying that there's you know correct answer to this or that there's a correct solution because I think I've probably developed my own biases from, from what I was seeing 
my gut feeling is I think there probably was some sort of intrinsic pathology that was, that was taking place. I, I think there were, you know, what I was seeing, however, was that it seems to be the mo most harmful thing that was going on was liberal fluid administration. So, so when patients were being sort of written up for two litres of, of plasma light and then, you know, the doctor walking away, I definitely saw patients who, after that, um, did have increasing oxygen requirements and who we were having to put on, on Optiflow and, and things like that. I think the difficulty was we, a lot of the patients that, that were on the ward were not really candidates for, for mechanical ventilation. Um, and that, you know, everyone was really apprehensive about worsening their, their respiratory failure. And I think the way, you know, we tended to manage them was, was really by being much more judicious, um, taking a global approach to, to each patient. Um, and then, you know, if, if they were breathless and on oxygen with a stable blood pressure and they were alert and they had a normal lactate, then I think we were, you know, weren't being too liberal about giving them the IV fluid and, and trying to see what's the, the, you know, the least amount of IV fluid that, that we could potentially give them. Um, I have to say, um, we didn't really see anyone um, that, that I was looking after who had an AKI that was severe enough that, that necessitated um, you know, transfer for renal replacement therapy. And yeah, I think that's, that's, that was basically my, my, my experience. Speaking of because I work at the same hospital as VI, I also cover the acute medical take. I'm one of five or six nephrologists at Bart's Health who do that. And I, I didn't have much acute medicine time, not certainly not as much as V, but the couple of takes I did, I was quite, quite struck by um, the hypovolemia that was accompanying patients when they were admitted. Some of them would have a sort of a mild stage one AKI. But I was also sort of met with a, a, a general reticence to, to give IV fluids um, by sort of the A&E and, and medical staff, not just where I work, but also having spoken to colleagues around the country. And I, I, I found that junior doctors were anxious about pushing patients into pulmonary edema and precipitating the need for mechanical ventilation at a time when it looked like the outcomes from mechanical ventilation and NIV were, were actually quite poor. And I think there was a, a big worry about tipping patients towards those mechanical devices. And one of the ways they were trying to avoid that was about the, the, the um, restrictive use of flu. So you may have seen a different side of things to me, although like I say, my experience was, was fairly anecdotal. And I think that, again, one of our most important strategies in this country and beyond is to work out the right approach to fluid therapy in the very initial phases. Because I, I suspect, John, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, that some of the prothrombotic events you had up on, on ITU were a, a sequelae of, of perhaps relative hypovolemia in patients who are also hypercoagulable. Does that fit with your experience? Yeah, to, I'll try not to ramble on for too long, but chuck me off and I, I ramble on. Uh, but there initially we felt these patients were should be treated like classical ARDS where you would use a high peep strategy you would keep them very dry and you would maximize the health of the lung and its compliance however uh there over time I think our experience has evolved we've been using lower peep strategies because they're not particularly recruitable and that has an adverse effect on organ perfusion by and uh, venous return and uh, we have become a moderately more permissive with the fluid and I certainly think that we have been concerned that actually there was an element of microvascular dysfunction and microemboli in the lungs 
and that might be worsened by these kind of strategies that would actually compromise pulmonary blood flow. And the same things, conversely, might be happening in the kidney. Um, and actually, if you look at the evidence, what the evidence has shows is that in ARDS that running a relatively kind of neutral fluid strategy is potentially beneficial for the kidney and can shorten mechanical duration and mechanical ventilation. But that's not the same thing as actually deliberately trying to dry out patients. And also our kind of historic experience of ARDS in the context of multi-organ failure after surgery, the patients come with a much larger upfront fluid overload than these COVID patients, who, as you say, many of them arrived to hospital with a significant level of dehydration. And so we kind of did a bit of a handbrake turn on our management and what we're advising and kind of advised that patients should be adequately fluid resuscitated initially and then be kept sort of moderately neutral, allowing for their large insensible losses. And even with that, we've seen a lot of sodium abnormalities, a lot of hypertremia and these kind of things. But certainly this, and I think it may be different in a patient who you're definitely not going to mechanically ventilate and you're really worried about fluid overload. Maybe they've also got some comorbidities. But what we've done in the ICU has kind of changed a bit. And I think in the early on, we diuresed people into oliguria and requiring renal replacement therapy. And we've certainly stopped doing that. Yeah, lots happening in ICU, which is just making me wonder about the patients that don't need ICU or perhaps don't make it to ICU. Um, so there are, um, as Dorothea mentioned earlier on, there are um, areas, certain communities that have more um, COVID um, than others. And that's probably a combination of community transmission or um, exposure to, to, to ex hospitals or, or staff or people, um, which is relevant to something that's happened in uh, the Northwest, um, but not all patients who got it there did badly. Um, I wonder if it's worth just talking about those dialysis patients who were screened at Bolton and how they presented and how they did. Obviously, there were some that didn't do so well, but um, how they presented in their progression. James Tracy, do you want to cover that? Yeah, so um, we've got a, a very... Um, uh, Helpful infection control team, and uh, who permitted, who once we, we recognised a few early cases that, that may be associated to the same uh, shift of dialysis, and with careful negotiation with infection control and what was a, a fairly rationalised resource at the time, uh, we were able to swab um, a, a lot of uh, the whole of that shift. Is that right, Trace? So, so the, the other patients, they we we just screened everybody as James said, and um, they weren't symptomatic. And um, so we we screened them, and we found that there was another um, nine nine patients on the Bolton unit who were um, confirmed COVID positive. And um, so what we done was we we then moved all of those patients over to the hot site at Salford, um, into the um, confirmed part of the unit and then we managed them from there on um, I think there was only um, I think they all um, recovered well but but were they getting symptomatic after screening or how did you screen did you do it with a test or with, with symptom screening we, we just swabbed everybody it was just um we just decided to swab everybody yeah. and um, they they weren't symptomatic it was just that the test came back positive so uh, at least from the data I've looked at in one London centre, most of these people do get symptomatic after a while. Was that your experience as well? C certainly not symptomatic no. enough to require hospitalisation. Uh, so the, but, uh, I think I think if you if you went into detail with the, 
with their symptoms. They may have had a few of them may have had myalgias and a few of them may have had some mild symptoms. But I think this is what's what what we what we term asymptomatic carriers really in the in the in the grand scheme of things. I don't think they would have presented to any hospital service uh, had they not uh, been screened um, uh, and initially. So it does it just raises some future mm. concerns I think going forward yeah. um, and how maybe that should be an approach that all units might take once they find an instant case or or certainly at least uh, two yeah. cases. I'm, I'll defer to expert epidemiologists about how you would uh, do that and, and, and but I, th I think that was it was a key learning for us really and certainly should be shared I think. Did, did you also ask for anosmia? Because that is in the general population one of the markers and not all dialysis units included that in their initial screen um, of symptoms. They all ask about fever and cough. Um, but for one unit I know they, they, they had a more sensitive screening and then there were people who, were te who tested positive a week later, initially negative and then positive. But they, they didn't have much. Um, but they, if, if they hadn't been screened, they wouldn't have presented or you wouldn't know that they are unwell no, no we did uh, we don't we didn't specifically ask for anosmia because i think uh, at the time i'm not even sure that anosmia was it was definitively a, a symptom um and uh, so we, we didn't ask for it but i think there's probably a, an extra piece of work to be done around this, this this group of patients really about what's what's what questions you ask and um what investigations you do for them um i mean there's other there's other biomarkers that have been suggested um, ferritin, for example, has been seen to be uh, a marker of asymptomatic carriers in, in a dialysis cohort that was published recently because these patients are getting ferritin, ferritin every month anyway. And they look back and they, they, they notice that those that had asymptomatic uh, disease also demonstrated high ferritin. So um, I think there's a, I think there's there's a piece of work to be done in, in here, and we don't know enough information. About yeah, I, I agree. So we're we're nationally figure trying to figure out different strategies that might work, and and going forward as as the epidemic is is getting more under control, because question is what happens when it comes next, as Gavin has asked. Yeah, I think it's interesting to see the other side because sometimes when we talk about COVID, we talk about the ICU admissions and that if you and dialysis patients do badly and if they get it they will they will end up on IC well they, they will not do well but I think the screening exercise certainly our satellite unit showed that the majority actually um, had it and got better just like the general population do um, we don't know what proportion of that it get better and what don't because we don't have that population level data but it's not a, a given so I think that was quite a, 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 an interesting thing to share um, the other thing um, that we've noticed is that there's perhaps immunosuppressed patients behaving differently. So I think just before we do finish, I'd, I'd be quite interested to see people's experiences and views on the presentation of those immunosuppressed patients um, and also whether there's anything that's come out from a data point of view, because I know you collect transplant patient data, uh, Dorothea. Any insights on the data before we move to the experience side of things? Well, we've, we've got reports, but the problem I have with that is that we might only know a subset of patients, so only those get reported who are reported to the urino unit who do badly. So we don't entirely believe it. We are now working with a national transplant NHSBT who've also set up a data collection separately, and also we are working with Public Health England to link, to triangulate all those data and then to understand. Um, but from my own clinical experience, I've got one immunosuppressed patient who basically just 
I had a little bit of temperature, nothing, nothing else. I was really worried, but she seems better. So it wasn't as dramatic as people made out. Of course, for a lot of our immunosuppressed patients, we're really trying very hard to shield them. And so we may not be seeing the same numbers of patients that we might otherwise. It's, I'm finding it quite difficult to tell. I, I don't have any personal experience. I think we've had a few transplant patients who've, who've been unwell. But like you said earlier, Smith, in my experience with the dialysis patients is a lot of my patients have had a mild flu-like illness for a few days, recovered and done well. And I was delighted to see that because I was very, very anxious, as I guess everybody was that this would really be a catastrophic illness in our uh, dialysis cohorts. I mean, from, sorry, from a Northwest perspective, again, I think I echo those uh, thoughts really is that the shielding and the, probably the, the extra time perhaps that we had uh, the, in the lead up meant that actually our, our transplant population has not, we've not seen a lot of transplant patients admitted, uh, certainly had uh, no intensive care admissions for our pet transplant population. I think we've, got, we've also had, uh, we've had no major adverse outcomes for our, our transplant population. So, uh, and I think that's, I presume that's directly due to shielding, but also some of the interventions that we've done on an outpatient basis, such as uh, home delivery of our transplant immunosuppressions and telephone consultations, uh, really minimising their exposure to healthcare services wherever possible. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the other point to say is that we've also had a lot of communication with them and shared a lot of um, shared a lot of information with them uh, to try and support them through a pretty tricky tricky time for them when they were obviously very nervous. But I think that that population is probably the most aware of potential worse outcomes that they may have. I, I would, and looking on some of the kidney patient websites, you really do get a feel from, for the anxieties that the transplant population has in, our, in, in the country, really, uh, about, the, about the virus. If anybody has anything that they want to share, but particularly if we can just go around and see what's the, what's the key thing that you want to take forward, what's your key learning or your key um, thing that you would want to share with an international community, what would that be? that be and if I can start with uh, Gavin uh, I think it's all come down to communication <clears throat> which is a very very broad topic the science is one thing the epidemiology is clearly very very important but communicating through the scientific medium of you know peer-reviewed publications but also forums like this and 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 being willing to share experiences tips tricks supply chains that we may not have access to we're all in this together and and the way that we've worked so well together i think at Barts has been the way that we've communicated between departments and among departments and with our colleagues at the registry and we've been delighted to share with our neighbors and our friends about what we have been facing and what we think we might be facing and equally to receive information from others particularly reflecting on our italian colleagues but also hearing about what is happening just on our on our doorstep so for the international community, it is going to be all about communication. Thank you, Gavin. Okay, shall yeah. we carry on with the London yeah. lot? Yeah, I'd, I'd completely echo what Gavin said. I think, if anything, you know, this, this whole experience has um, taught us that the world is a lot smaller place than we, we might perceive it to be. And I think that, you know, this is a real opportunity for us to sort of um, strengthen um, you know, in, you know, international cooperation and strengthen, you know, already the, the institutions that exist um, internationally. And I think, you know, ISN is, is a perfect example of that. And just recognise that, um, you know, these solutions are often, you know, if we communicate them out to, to everyone early, then we can get the planning in place and then we can actually deal with them far better than, than if we 
if we kind of just react. John, any key messages, even if it's uh, clinical or non-clinical? So, yeah, the world, it, despite the fact we can't travel, the world's become a smaller place. Um, and I've actually, it's interesting, I've been to Wuhan several times. I know intensivists there. And the speed which went, this went from something somebody was telling me about on email to being something that we were experiencing clinically and then even personally was uh, breathtaking. But I think my overall um, uh, conclusion is that we are going to see a restructuring in the way in which we do medicine. This goes from outpatient clinics, which I don't do, to hospital-based care, the way in which critical care is structured. Um, we are going to be living with this disease for some time in the future, and uh, it's not all going to go back to normal. And we've got to learn how um, also take the opportunities from adversity and try and work, use this integration to make healthcare provision better in this new landscape. Thank you. Dorothea, seeing as we're still in London. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so one thing I learned is the importance of having data. So when, when we started in March, we, the dialysis patients weren't on the list of shielded patients. And by providing our, our outcome data and contrasting them with what happens for the general population, they were added to the list of shielded patients by the uh, chief medical officer, which, uh, which is on the one hand, good for them because they're finally protected but it, it, yeah it's important to have that kind of evidence and protect patients as much as possible going forward the question is really how do we structure dialysis how to do it safely how to keep the in infection under control and there are various various ways of doing this and we need to really figure out how we how we come out of this so I will work with, with the national leaders and, and all the colleagues in the units to try and get the best evidence to, to inform this Thank you. Um, and now we're going up to the north. So Tracy, it would be really useful to get your insight from the MDT around how things have changed because they changed a lot for the nurses. It has and I suppose um, for us it's mainly around um, timely case identification and um, isolation and screening of the patients um, obviously to, to have um, better outcomes for for patients. Yeah, thank you. Because we benefited from that, didn't we Tracy? We did, we did. And I think that's paramount to keeping our patients um, virus-free. Yeah, probably my key learning really is, is that when you're making so many changes to how you're structuring your service um, and how you're delivering nephrology care, you've got to take the patient along with you and keeping them involved in the changes because they're, they're already unsettled by, the, by what's going on outside in the community. And if one of their safety net, the, the nephrology service that they potentially have relied on for many years has also disappeared from under their feet, and they don't know how to access it, then that, again, could be really unnerving for them. So I think you've got to make sure that the changes you're making to services, you're taking patients with them, and, you, and where possible, you're involving them in those decision-making as well. I mean, as, a, as John said, there's a potential for a huge amount of change in nephrology uh, service and how we provide it and how we um, provide value to their service and uh, to their kidney care. Really, you're only going to try and do that um, if you've got a patient representative and patients uh, involved in some of those decision making. So let's not lose the opportunity that, that unfortunately COVID has handed us really. Thank you so much. So I think we're going to wrap up now, but I hope, I mean, that was a fascinating conversation from my side because I've been very much stuck in the operational side with only about five days on the front line. So hearing the range of views from acute medicine, nursing, ICU, AKI, everything uh, pretty much covers uh, the experience from a, a hot 
city to somewhere that had the benefits of learning uh, and really the lockdown and contact tracing for us was uh, invaluable. So um, at this point, I'll wrap up now. Um, and thank you very much for participating in the podcast.